Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning desperate for you. And even as the song said, uh, we need you in ways, we need your grace in ways, oh God, that our words can't fully articulate. I know that this is the understatement of the year when I say that I need you, but Lord God, by your spirit, let the degree to which I need you be fully articulated. And then, oh God, please meet us, us, not just me, Lord God, the teacher, but also the hearer in our desperate need. As we bring our hearts in our hands, oh God, and, and we look at our lives and we see the stuff that's messed up and, 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 and Lord God, we can only describe what we see, but there's needs that we have for you that are deeper than the symptoms of the circumstances of our lives, there is a desperate need for you in very particular ways. And we need your help to show us not only how badly we need you, but in what specific ways we need you. So Lord God, meet with every single one of us in our unique space of need right now and show yourself strong, show yourself mighty, show yourself however you feel the need to make a debut, Lord God, in our lives in that space. This we ask in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, James is cutting us a little bit of a break this morning, didn't he? If you've been walking with us for any period of time and you've been going through the book of James, I mean, man, he is going, he goes hard into paint. He goes for the jugular. There are times when uh, uh, James says things to us and we're like, ouch, even last week was one as he began to really grab us by the, by the front of our shirts and wrinkle it a little bit when he talked to us about the way we view money, when he talked to us about the way we approach a religion. If you remember that from a few chapters ago and said, anybody who's got good religion and you're not uh, visiting the poor or taking care of the orphans and, and you're just telling people be warmed and filled and that's the, the highest expression of your faith, you don't really have real religion. I mean, James has been going hard at us and really throwing some serious punches to kind of allow us to see our deep, desperate need for, for not just Jesus, Jesus and Jesus alone, but also to turn toward him and live for him because the people that he's been talking to are not unbelievers. They are believers just like you and I, just like many of us. And so uh, when I say he's cutting us a little bit of a break is that today's text is not nearly as sharp uh, as some of the other passages have been, but definitely equally important. If you got your Bibles with you, turn with me in them to uh, James chapter 5. And we're going to just look at a, a couple of verses here because there's something I want to share with you um, really quickly. In verse 7, it says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of of the Lord is at hand. I'll be honest with you, when I was about eight or nine, uh, somewhere in that range, maybe even 10, and I would read the, the passages of scripture that would encourage people to work and live in ways as if the Lord was coming now, I would look at the text and go, man, they got gypped. That sounds immature, but hey, that's where we were, right? I look at that and I go, well, he still hadn't come. Not saying he isn't coming, but man, what did they stop doing and what did they start doing? What level of urgency and anxiety did they begin to live under thinking that the Lord was coming back during their day? Because it seems as if the text, in every time someone mentions the return of the Lord, it's always with a certain sense of urgency that this thing is happening during your day. It is imminent. Don't delay to do the things that you would do because the coming of the Lord is at hand. And I would say, man, those people got gypped. What did they cut out of their lives? What fun could they have been, you know, been having or whatever? And I know this is grossly and deeply immature, but again, this is the, these are the contemplations of a nine-year-old, right? But I'll tell you what really helped my heart was when I read the words of Jesus himself talking about his own return, and he says that no man knows the day nor the hour. 
And I said, well, if Jesus has already announced that nobody knows when he's returning, why is it that all of those that follow him seem to impress upon us this need to live differently now as though we do know? And I'll tell you why. You see, a proper anticipation of the Lord's return has never been about picking or prospecting the right date on the calendar, but it's always been about producing the right character. I'll say that again. A full and proper, a righteous anticipation of the Lord's return has never been about trying to pick the perfect or the right date on the calendar, but it has always been about driving us to cultivate and develop the right kinds of character. And the moment that we get preoccupied with the date, our faithfulness toward the Lord becomes very taskless and duty-oriented. But the moment that it becomes about longing for the Lord, as we talked about, mustering through faith and by the Lord's own grace, that desire to know him and see him, it does something to our life that isn't just duty-driven. We are devoted to him and we want to see him and we desire to see him face to face. And so James helps us with this understanding by giving us three profiles that we should look at throughout the passage. These three profiles in the passage. Number one, he tells us, if I want to cultivate the right kind of character that is effectively anticipating the return of the Lord, the first character profile I need to look at is that of the farmer. And then he also tells us that we should look at the habits of the former or the actions of former prophets of old. And then he goes on and he begins to disclose something to us that's really implied in the text about the father's aspiration for those that are following after him and looking for him. And so we're going to unpack those three ideas today. If you're a note taker, we're going to be doing everything falling under the umbrella of looking at the farmer's attitude, the former prophet's actions, and then what is the father's aspiration for those people who are anticipating his return. So if you got your Bibles with you, and we're still there in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, is really what outlines for us the farmer's attitude. If we get that text up on the screen, I want you to take a look at a few things with me. If you look at the farmer's attitude here as depicted, there are several facets. First of all, I want to draw you to what you do not see. When you think about the farmer's attitude or anyone's attitude who is, who is considering the Lord's return, Hollywood has done us a great disservice because it's always this emphasis on the destructive and apocalyptic doomsday, something is falling kind of ideal. But notice that the farmer's heart is not about building bunkers, that is to try to wait out some kind of catastrophe. The farmer's heart has nothing to do with building bigger barns and trying to store up as much as they can so that they can weather some type of apocalyptic storm. The farmer's heart has nothing to do, if you can see, there's no, there's no mention in the text of trying to hurry up and finish his bucket list right, to get all the fun things that I wanted to do and all the places that I wanted to travel. I wanted to go to Croatia. I wanted to go to Prague. I wanted to, I wanted to go to Constantinople. I wanted to, I wanted to take pictures in front of some old castle and put it, in my, um, put it on my Facebook. Like the farmer isn't focused on finishing a bucket list, but the farmer is focused on certain key things that, the, that James tells us very clearly. Number one, he tells us that the farmer does this, that he labors with patience. It says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, seeing how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. I love the farmer's mentality here. Not only does he labor with patience, but he also looks at the harvest as being precious. You see, when you see the outcome of one's work as being precious, it has something, it, it, it produces a certain mentality toward the work you're doing. In other words, the harvest is, is, is considered to be uh, precious. The outcome of what will happen through the things that we're doing and planting now, when that's viewed as being precious, then the work becomes a privilege and not drudgery. 
It's not just trying to finish up tasks or make sure that I check the box and get in enough church services or that I've gone by the priest and made an appropriate number of confessions or that I'm keeping this running list of all my biggest and my deepest sins and I'm trying to get that stuff squared away before the Lord's return become because I don't want to get caught doing that stuff. But But a heart that views the return of the Lord as precious views the current work, the here and now, as being a privilege. So anticipation of the Lord's return is not a bunker mentality because we are not just trying to hover up and, call and, and, and just cover ourselves where we have no connectivity with the real world around us. There is real work to be done, and that work is considered by the farmer to be a privilege. When my sister and I were growing up... Um, uh, both of our parents worked. And uh, what was interesting about uh, our parents' work is that one, one of our parents had a traditional schedule, kind of the uh, nine-to-fiver, and then my dad was a, a truck driver. He's here, you can, and you can validate that these stories are true because he is here. And so because, my dad, because of what my dad did for a living, you never knew when he was going to come back. You never knew if he was going to leave and it was going to be a one-day trip or if it was going to be a five-day trip. You never knew. And so in the summers when we would be home by ourselves and our parents would come in and be like, hey, this is what we need you to do while we're gone. You know, we'd be like, oh, okay. And they would leave and it's like, you know, we'd get up, eat some cereal at 11.30. Eat some more cereal at 2. What did she say we needed to do? Oh, we got to vacuum the living room? All right. She'll be home at 6 o'clock get the vacuum out at five. We don't even have to run it. Just, just push it to get them lines in a few key places. <laughs> I've repented since then. I do turn it on at least before Carrie gets home. Um, but nevertheless, what was interesting about this was that we view the work as something that we had to rush and do based on the clock before our parents got home. I'll tell you this one key moment because as, as, a, as a kid, we had, we had two dogs and they both lived outside. And in Alabama, what was crucial was not only that they be fed twice a day, but that their bowls be filled with water because they would dehydrate. And so I had one job, one exclusive job. I mean, the other internal chores, my one exclusive external job was to keep water in the dog's bowls. And I remember I had not properly picked the time that my dad was going to come home. I knew I was safe based on when my mom got home, but I had miscalculated when my dad was coming home. And I was about seven or eight houses down the street, and I saw my dad's car turn the corner, entering the subdivision, and I took off like the flash. I mean, running home, doing my best to try to beat him in the driveway. I don't know, maybe people in the neighborhood thought I was excited to see my dad, and I just wanted to be waiting for him at the end of the driveway. No, I was trying to get over the fence, into the backyard, turn on the faucet, get water in the pot, so he wouldn't even hear the water, and hopefully he didn't see me because I was just cutting and weaving between all kinds of stuff. But needless to say, I couldn't outrun the car. And so it was obvious that I hadn't done what I was supposed to do. But I feel like a great many of us, that's the kind of life that we live. Let me do whatever I want to do, and then if I see the signs of the Lord coming, then I'll rush and get my chores done. But if we truly cherish the coming of the Lord. If that's what my heart really longs for, my heart really sees, I don't view the work of ministry and the work of mission as chores to be gotten done before somebody catches me undone. And so I believe this is a place that the Lord would call us to if we really adopt the mindset or the attitude of a farmer, we see the harvest, we see the the end game of all my work as being precious. 
I want the Lord to come. And, and another thing about the, the, the farmer that I love is this. Not only does he labor with patience, he understands that the input that he makes, that the outcomes would look radically different. So he isn't looking for a return on investment that, that, that matches his own expectations. He understands that it'll look rad radically different. But not only that, but, but he also looks at the harvest as precious. But there is something about also the mindset and predisposition of farmers that I want you to understand that is not mentioned in the text, but it is just understood based on how farmers work. Do you understand that the farmer's predisposition toward others is this? The majority of what he produces does not go to himself, it goes to others. I mean, if the majority of what you grow goes for you, you're not a farmer, you're a gardener. But the farmer, uh, regardless of how much he puts in, regardless of how much he comes out, the, 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 the beauty and the preciousness of what a, a farmer produces is the impact that it has on the others who get a chance to feed and benefit from it. The smallest of all portions of what is produced from a farmer's harvest goes to himself. And so the farmer's attitude and the farmer's mentality toward the Lord's return, if we want to begin cultivating a heart that desires to see the return of the Lord and it not be met with anxiety and trepidation and, and bunker building and building more barns and trying to get my bucket list out of the way, the proper mentality is, Lord, do I view your return and the outcomes of making disciples as being precious work? And if it's precious in its outcome, then it is privileged work right now. And do I also have a mindset that understands that, that there must be myriads of others who benefit from what I'm doing and I'm not just castle building for myself? So, Paul puts it another way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. He simply asks a question. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So, if you wanted to put a bow on this, it would be this. Only when the Lord's presence is my chief joy will preparing for his return be my main concern. Only when being in the Lord's presence, his unbroken, un, uninhibited presence, only when being in the Lord's presence is my chief joy in life will preparing for his return be my main concern. Only then and then and only then. I, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Carrie, raise your hand, baby. That's my wife of 20 years. And uh, in the very first chapter of our relationship, before, prior to getting married, we dated long distance. Yeah, I lived in Michigan, and she was living uh, not just in Texas. She was living at the bottom of Texas, like in Laredo, like right next to We could see Mexico uh, from the deck of her apartment. And so... Um, you know, this is in the pre-cell phone era, or it is at the, at the just on the edge of it. So, uh, you know, cell phones didn't have full-blown market penetration at this point. Um, if you wanted to talk to people, you paid long-distance fees on phones that had cords coming out of the bottom, right? And, 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 and so, Carrie, when, when, we, when we developed our relationship, this was uh, uh, December the 7th of 1996 that we started dating. And I went back to uh, uh, Detroit or whatever, and, and, and we spent our time preparing for each other's presence. I mean, it was just like, all right, well, this month you're coming to see me, that month I'm coming to see you. And, 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 and it was so incredible. What I, what, I, what, I, what I hated about the long-distance relationship was the fact that it was long-distance, but what I loved about the long-distance relationship was the longing that I had to see my boo. 
I mean, you know, uh, you know, you know, distance really does make the heart grow fonder. I mean, man, I really loved and enjoyed every single aspect of the preparation. I mean, man, if I was, if I was going to see her, I mean, I'd throw back the doors on the closet, and, and it was like, all right, which outfits can I take? I'm going to be with her a limited time, so not everything in here matters. Only my best, right? And, and then is there some special thing that I can bring, a gift that, that shows, uh, you know, my appreciation and, and just my, my, my desire to be there? But above that, there was work that even went in prior to that because at the time I was working as a security guard making about $6.18 an hour, which means every single cent went to buying plane tickets. The plane ticket from Detroit to San Antonio uh, was $281 in 1996. I bought a bunch of those. And then you had to catch a Greyhound bus from San Antonio down to Laredo, right? And she would sometimes pick me up at the bus depot or whatever. But, but my whole life in between seeing her again and again was about preparing to see her again and again. Why? Because my chief joy was her presence. And so the overtime that I had to work, the sweat equity that it put in meant nothing to me. Yeah, I didn't view it as labor. I viewed it as readiness to see my boo. I mean, complaints from other workers who said, you are being unfair to us. You cannot work two shifts back to back. You're disqualified. You're denying everybody else the opportunity to work in the overtime. Shoulder shrugs. Got to see my boo. Because <laughs> at 618 an hour, 281 is like a whole, like that's more than a whole week's check after taxes. And I still got to put gas in my vehicle and all that other kind of stuff. But, but again... Only when the Lord's presence is my chief joy will preparing for his return be my main concern. But it's always about how we view his return. Is it, is it scary? Is it anxiety prone? Is it apocalyptic? What do I long to see my Lord? Does my heart desire nothing else in life? Then everything else in life becomes about preparing for that moment, that time with him. Let's take a look at James's other recommendations or his, his, his imperative, which is not only we pay attention to the attitude of the farmer, but that we also take note of what happens in the lives of former prophets. In verses 9 through 11, he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, and as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, we, we would do ourselves well to pay attention to the attitude of the former prophets. And specifically, the Bible gives us, James gives us, uh, not just this generic task of going to look back and look at all the prophets. He says, let me just narrow your focus to the life of Job. When you look at the life of Job, if you don't know the story, uh, you should read this. But in the first two chapters, what you learn about Job is that his finances were in, were in a charitable place, like he was rich. The Bible makes us know that first, I mean, first two to three verses. He was, he was in a very good position financially. His faith was intact because it talks about him going up to make sacrifices, not only for himself, but also for his children. And so not only were his, was his faith intact, but his finances were intact, but also it seems that he, he was the priest of his house 
household and he believed deeply in family and bringing him along in, in the understanding of the Lord so his family life was intact. Also, uh, because the primary attack on Job after we see the, the, the falling down of his, his, his family and his finances, we also see that his health was attacked. So prior to that, we also know that physically he was in a good place. And we also know just by implication that, you know, Job also had a healthy collection of friends. But do you notice what happened in Job's life that when, his, when, when, when calamity fell on him, when a time, a season of temptation fell on him, when his children were killed and his wealth drew up and his cattle were gone, do you remember the conversations that took place between his friends and family? It was his wife who came to him and said, you should curse God and die, man. Go ahead and hang up the sneakers on this. It was his friends who came in and began to surround him with various conversations to tell him, man, your health has failed, your money is gone. Why are you holding on to this faith? But the Bible shows us that, that, that even though, even though his friends and family encouraged him to do and to take the evil route and to do things that didn't honor God, I mean, his wife for all people. But even though friends and family encouraged him to take the coward's way out and to curse God and die, even though his, 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 his physical body was riddled, even though in Job's own heart, in Job's own heart, he began to internally contemplate things based on his external circumstances, he still remained steadfast and faithful. This is what the Bible wants us to know. And so here's what I want you to know based on this, looking at, at, at Job's life. How did Job and others like him do it? You see, it is the history of God and our hope in God that must hold us as we wait for God. I'll say that again. Job and others like him who the Bible says are approved in the way that they endured uh, great difficulty as they waited for the Lord is this. It, 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 it can be surmised as it must be the history of God and our hope in God that must hold us as we wait for God. Without a healthy understanding of God's history, without a healthy pulling that history forward and cultivating it into a hope, there is nothing that we can hold on to that will keep our hearts steady in the present as we wait for God. Well, here's a, that's a big statement, Pastor Rod. How? Here's how. I want to give you a few points that I believe are found right there in verses 9 through um, 12 or 9 through, through 11. It, how is it that I can take the history of God, translate it to the hope in God, so that it can, I can hold on to it in my wait for God? Number one, verse 10 tells us that we need to take advantage of the Bible's examples and not just of its promises. I need to take advantage, listen to me very carefully, I need to take full advantage of the Bible's examples and not just its promises. Let me go a little bit further with that. When I hear about and when I think about and when I, when I think about my own life, I'll, I'll, I'll give my first, I'll, I'll do the first, I'll have the first indictment here today. When I think about some of my earliest and, and most, and, and not even earliest, some of my currentest uh, and immature seasons in God's word, it's easy to reach and find the flowery passages. It's easy to reach and find the promises, the things that say exactly what I would love them to say, the stuff that mentions my circumstances and it only focuses on the beautiful and blessed outcomes. But there are deeper and greater examples on the other side of promised outcomes that show us beautiful things about ourselves, burdensome things about ourselves, and awesome things about our God. The total voice of God's word and the examples that may not be charming. I mean, there are the whole example. I mean, I believe that the Bible 
and, and the Holy Spirit in particular are very careful to show us that even the great faith heroes like Moses and David and Abraham are people who have real brokenness and real problems because we are called to take in the full example of the Bible and not just its promises. When I see the full examples of the Bible, I begin to say, wow, if David was broken like that, then God will, can work with me. There's no mess that I bring to the table. Wow. If Abraham struggled with that and he's the Godfather of faith, then I too can have a robust relationship with God. When we only focus on the promises, we miss critical character production that God wants to produce in us. And so number one, how do I link up the history of God and my current hope in God so that it holds me uh, as I wait for God? I need to take full advantage of the examples of the scripture. How many of us know the Old Testament prophet's job description? I can, there's about seven or eight points, but I won't give them to you all. I'll, I'll bucket them this way. When a prophet came to town, it wasn't like a packed auditorium and a bunch of people waiting on a promise that their businesses were going to be blessed and that they were about to get the car in the house of their dreams. That's not what the Old Testament job description of a prophet looked like. That's not the, that's not the imagery. The imagery of a prophet rolling into town uh, during the days of old, specifically in the time that James is drawing our attention to, was that they came in and they pointed out sin, typically dealing with gross national immaturity. They pointed out sin, and then they pulled people toward God and said, here's the promise of the covenant if you'll repent. So they pointed out sin, pointed people back to God, but they also did something else. They cultivated in people who were defeated and downtrodden, they cultivated in them, in, in them a deep desire desire to see the return of the Lord's Messiah. I mean, that was the whole job of the prophet was to stir, not satisfaction with where they current, currently were, not just to browbeat and point out sin, but to cultivate and to stir and to produce a deep longing to see their Messiah and to see the salvation of their Lord. That was the job of the prophet. And so if we read the whole example of the Bible, as, as James says, take into consideration what the prophets do, that's exactly what we'll walk away with, is a fresh cultivation for the coming of our Lord. Lord, I need to see you right now. I want to see you come, not just in some cameo or not just a picture. I want to see you, not just coming on the clouds. I want to fully embrace you and know you in my life. I want to see your salvation. I want to know your fellowship. That is what the Bible will do for us when we take into consideration the, all of the examples and not just the promises. But there's something else. Verse 11 tells us that not only should we take into example, uh, consideration the holistic examples of prophets, but when you look at the life of Job, it also brings us to a place where we must take note of the character's wins and losses, their strengths and weaknesses. The Bible in no way presents Job to us as the perfect practitioner of faith, but the Bible clearly shows us areas where his theology radically needed a fresh update. His ideas about God that had been snowed under over time by the fact that everything was going well, there was stuff underneath all the ways that he had been blessed. There was stuff in his character that still needed to be carved out. And so the Bible invites us to see both the wins and losses, the ups and downs, the strengths and weaknesses of our great Bible heroes. And why does he do that? Paul has something to say about that as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. So that as it is written, let no one boast. If they have a boast, let them boast in the Lord. One of my most other immature contemplations of the scripture as a kid was, 
Well, of course they trust you like that, God. Look what you're doing in their night. I mean, you showing up at the party, taking water, and filling up the bar with wine. Of course people are awesomely following you. You're healing right in front of them, always believing that they somehow had an advantage in faith. But the Bible calls us to take in, or the gospel calls us to take in the full voice of Scripture, the strengths, the weaknesses, the ups and downs, the highs and the lows of even those biblical characters, so that our understanding of what God is doing is not somehow limited to just the promises and not just the wins. But then verse 12 calls us to do something else. It's a subtle mention. Look back at verses 9 through um, 11. And look at verses 9 through 11. But look at this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who have, uh, excuse me, and you have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's right there next to your camera. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Appreciate that. For those of you listening, my podcast, I am reaching for my handkerchief. Um, number 12 that we should also take into consideration and we should look at the actions and the attributes of the Lord. Here's what, what I mean. Notice how it says that when, when we see the life of Job and we hear of the great steadfastness and you've seen, it says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It is not enough just to endure struggle. It's not enough just to overcome or, or outlive or, or undergo struggle. It's not enough. The end game of God is that we would take a look at the specific actions that he took. Obviously, in Job's life and many others who see themselves going through a great season of difficulty as they wait on God, we also see the purposes of God wrought in the life of Job. It was his intent to hold Job up as a trophy of grace in the face of Satan that says, this man is faithful, and Satan would say, because you kept him, and God would say, exactly. I keep those that are mine. And so the Lord, that is his action, and that is his work, but the Lord not only wants us to take, pay attention to and take note of his actions, but it's and, capital A-N-D, his actions and his attributes, that he is a God who is compassionate and merciful, because the actions of God evoke praise, but the attributes will draw us to our knees in worship, because now we know what to say to him in both spirit and in truth. God, you are not just the God of the Bible who did big stuff, but you have been compassionate and merciful to me. And that is a place where the Lord wants to draw every one of us. And so we're called to, to read our Bibles in this beautiful way. You know, when we read our Bibles regularly, when we, when we, when we consider fully the, the examples of Scripture, what it helps us to do is assign a proper theological address to the things that we encounter in life. Minus a robust study life, minus a devotional life that, uh, in the Scripture, you go through things and you're like, ah, oh, God, I need you. But when you see the examples in Scripture, it's like, God, I need you in this way. I need you in a way that you showed up in Abraham's life. I need you the way you showed up in Jacob's life. I need you the way you showed up in David's life. I need you the way you showed up in James's life. Lord, I need you that way. We begin to assign specifics to it. And it really cultivates a heart of worship. But then there's something else that the text says that not only should we cultivate or should we take attention, pay attention to the father's, excuse me, the farmer's attitude, 
but also the former prophet's actions. But then there's something here in verse 12 that almost seems like a little bit of a left turn or like a, a random add-on. In verse 12 and, and, and 13, look at this. Verse 12, it says, uh, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. What does this have to do with the rest of the text? Jesus has something to say about this in Matthew chapter 5, because that's what James is referencing, is the words of Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 and following, listen to this. And again, you have heard it said of those of old that you shall not swear falsely. So again, that you should be people of deep character and credibility and integrity. He says, you've heard it of old in, in the Old Testament that you shouldn't bear false witness or swear falsely. But he says, but you shall perform your Lord's, you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne, because it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no, and anything more than this comes from evil. Why was there a great preoccupation during Jesus' day and during James' day of taking oaths? and swearing. Notice that all the things that people swore by were larger than or outside of them or more grave. You've heard it during contemporary times. If somebody wants to build credibility, no, nah, man, I swear. I swear to you, on my mother's grave. Right? We always believe that if we can bring more gravitas to our character, we can make people, we can become a more believable people, a more trustworthy people, a people of more profound, uh, 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 again, integrity by swearing on the basis of something larger than or bigger than or outside of ourselves. One of the most beautiful places in Scripture that I love is when God was talking to Abraham and making the promise of his covenant. The Bible says that God swore by himself because he couldn't find anything bigger or better than him to swear by as a, as a, as a linchpin of his own integrity that he would follow through. And so the Father's aspiration is not that we would be him, but in much the same way that he finds no need to swear by anything outside of himself to be, a, to be faithful and trustworthy, he calls us likewise as we mirror his presence to also be people of that kind of character consistency where we are trustworthy and believable. So that our yeses can be yes and our noes can be noes. Now, what is this passage really asking us? It's asking us a couple of really key questions. What am I saying yes to? What am I saying no to? And how often do I flip-flop on the two? Let's walk those out again. In our lives, there are certain things that, that, that are a clear advertisement of our, of our faithfulness and our, our steadfastness. What are the things that I'm saying yes to? What are the things that I affirm? What are the things that I, that I co-sign on? What are the things that I say no to, that I prohibit from being a part of my life? And how often do I flip-flop on those commitments? Psalm 1, one of the most popular and the foremost psalms. Many of us know those words. Blessed is the man that does what? Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night, and he shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that will produce fruit in his season. Do you see that example of the blessed man's life? He is a person that has absolute clarity on what he supports and endorses and what he does not. And because of that, the Lord says publicly, this is my poster child. I can bless that. 
This is a person that will produce fruit in their season, and they will not weary. They won't run out of water. They're a person that regardless of what's going on, they'll be able to produce. Why? Because their yeses have become yeses, and their noes have become noes, and they are not flip-flopping on the two. You see, here it is. The Father's aspiration is this, that we would become a people of deep conviction, clear priorities, and consistent follow-through. Not just saying the right things or saying good things, but the, but, the, but, but the Father's aspiration for those who are waiting for his return is that we will become a people again of deep conviction, clear priorities, and consistent follow-through on what we say we're going to do. Now, some of you in a moment might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, that just sounds like being disciplined and truthful. Anybody can do that. Why do we need Jesus for that kind of development? That just sounds like being a, you know, my word is bond or all these other phrases that we say. But any person in this audience who is honest with themselves, and we can think about the things that we say yes to and the things that we say no to, and how often we flip-flop the two, we know that we're not nearly as consistent in character as we'd like to think of ourselves. We know that that kind of lifestyle isn't just having consistency of speech, but it demands a certain consistency of character that only God, that God and God alone can develop in us. And that's what we desperately need. You know, when I think about, again, the father and the former prophets, if you look at them in their time of waiting, the prophets waited for God. They waited to see Jesus. It was the things that they, they desperately, as they preached and prophesied about the coming of a Messiah, they desperately longed to see the things that the believers of the New Testament actually saw face to face in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about the farmer, his desperate desire, his deep desire is to see the end harvest and the ultimate outcome, the end game of all the work and the inputs that he has made. And the, and the, and the Lord also wants us to become a kind of people that are consistently longing for him in that way. You understand that, that it is not until everything else in life other than Christ that we depend on, we realize that it cannot truly satisfy It is only at that point that we really begin to see the Lord as our only satisfaction. It is impossible to long deeply for the Lord Jesus Christ's return if you have a myriad of other things in your life that you believe will satisfy. Do you know what sin is? Sin is, not to be cheesy, but help me, may this will help you. Sin is satisfaction that ignores my need for God. All the different ways that I satisfy myself that readily, willingly, and boldly ignore my need for God. That's what, satisf- that's what sin is. It is, a, it is a substitute satisfaction. It says, you need this other than God. You need this rather than Christ. But the, the, the longer that we, when we repent from sin, live a life of sanctification, and we're constantly saying, Lord, you're the only thing that satisfies Either because I see it in your word or because I've known it through my experience, I have launched into a whole lot of different things and none of them truly have satisfied. And it's not until we get to that place where our heart says, Lord, every, nothing else that I get involved in satisfies me. It just causes me to ignore my need for you. And when we get to that point, we begin to long for the Lord, not just his return. We long for him and all of him. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is God saying, I am dying to be with you. I long to be with you again. The the, the gospel, Jesus on the cross is literally saying, I'm dying to be with you in unbroken fellowship. It is not enough for me to just sit in heaven and see you from a distance. It's not enough. 
I want to see you and know you face to face. I want, to, I want you to know me and I want to know you. In other words, Jesus Christ on the cross is him declaring the ultimate ineffectiveness of the long distance relationship. I want to be with my bride full time. And you and I are his bride. It is, the, it is the Lord Jesus Christ is saying that Skype won't do, text won't do, prayers won't do, phone calls won't do. I want to see you face to face. The gospel is God's dying declaration that I no longer want to be long distance. I want you face to face. Do you want me back like that? And if you do, your life will reflect the preparation, not the anxiety. And so the prayer is, Lord, cultivate in me a desire that, that seeks to see satisfaction in you above all else and anything else. And if you're here today and you say, I'd love to want the Lord like that, but I just don't. I got a lot of bucket lists, and I'm actively building a barn right now on the outskirts of town. And I'm going to put a bunker in it. And you're at a place in your life where you're saying, I, I, this sounds attractive, but how do I get there? It gets there because only God, only God by taking residency and occupancy in our hearts, only through the Lord actively living inside of me, rearranging the furniture of my hearts, re-inventorying that list of, of desires that I have and saying, this does not satisfy only by the occupancy of the Holy Spirit, which comes by way of us trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Only that way are our desires for God rearranged to where he becomes the chief desire and the chief joy. It is only through the occupancy of the Holy Spirit. It is only through the, 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 the submission and the surrender to Christ. It is only through the seal that God places on our heart. It is only through yielding, running for, and lunging for the, the, the Father's love and, and his love being reciprocated in us. But that can't happen unless God is in us rearranging some things. Because our desires don't naturally lean toward him. We are creatures who have been made and fashioned and formed in sin. In other words, our whole lives, our very DNA is, is, is framed around satisfaction in ways that ignore my need for God. And the only person that can come in and rearrange what satisfies me is God himself. Do you know why? Because we were not only made by him, but we were also, according to the scriptures, made for him. Many of us are very satisfied with God being the maker, but are we interested in him also being the master and also us being his workmanship? He desires to not only be the maker, but also to be the one to whom our hearts would be married. We are the bride of Christ if we are indeed in Christ. So I close with this quite simply. As you look at your desires, as you look at the things in your heart that often cause you to seek satisfaction other than him, the simple call is to repent. And if repentance is a problem, if turning from those things are a problem, here's the next point. Have you really given your heart over to the Lord? Have you really come to him and said, you're not only the maker of all human beings, but you're also the one who made us for you. And my life is not ever going to reflect fullness and satisfaction until it is used for you and by you, lived for you and by you. This is the call of the gospel, that, 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 that we would recognize that Jesus Christ didn't just die for us, he dies because he longs to be with us. And without us 
acknowledging what Christ did in our place on the cross, there is something that stands between us and God that does not allow us to be with him in a way that God wants to be with us. And that thing is sin. And he had to address that. He took on the wrath of God on our behalf. And he, 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 he defeated Satan on our behalf so that sin not only serves, it no longer is serving a penalty or death sentence on us, but it no longer has any power over us. That's what we need to do is we need to run toward God. And if you say, I can't run, then you need to repent. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you and praise you for just the beautiful, perpetually relevant word of God and how it is that you reach into our lives. Grab hold of our hearts, and you do, Lord God, for a moment. You create a sense of dissatisfaction. We begin to see ourselves in the mirror of your word and this isn't us, you trying, to, you trying to annoy us. It's you, Lord God, trying to show us what we need more of you. We thank you for conviction, and we thank you for the pull of the cross. We ask now, oh God, that you would search every one of our desires, and wherever we found satisfaction in ways that ignores our need for you, Lord God, that we be prepared to put that down and run towards you. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.